0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number two, Numbers, chapter one. Well, we, uh, we began to enter a new book of Torah the last time we met, the book of Numbers, and we went through a long introduction. And when we enter a new book of Torah... There's always some preliminaries to deal with so that we can approach things in proper perspective. If you didn't hear that introduction of Numbers, I highly suggest you get the CD or you listen to it on the web for free because there's some important fundamentals that were brought out in that 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 will benefit your study of the book of Numbers. Okay. It's about 1350, BC: as Israel prepares to leave Mount Sinai. After spending 400 years in Egypt, the last two centuries of that time as Egypt's slave labor force, God has finally rescued them from their plight. The Bible word used for this rescue is redemption. And this is because what occurred in that exodus from Egypt entailed a lot more than just a massive jailbreak. See, redemption is at its core a spiritual issue. And therefore, redemption is an important theme for the remainder of Torah. It also establishes a key God principle for our understanding of the New Testament. Hear this. First comes redemption, then comes understanding and relationship. First comes redemption, then comes understanding and relationship. I'm going to reiterate this somewhat controversial statement that I've alluded to at other times. The laws and commands of Torah, and of all the Bible for that matter, Old Testament or New, are not for non-believers to follow. It's only for the already redeemed. Once we're redeemed, then we begin to develop our relationship with God, which involves not only trust in Him, but obedience to those commands. The error comes when we think we can follow the laws of God like a recipe or a checkoff list in order to become a child of God. In fact, perhaps the greatest untold lesson of the Word of God is that the laws of God are only for those who trust Him. Okay? Don't let the Word, by the way, redeem or redemption throw you it essentially means the same thing as the church word salvation. So when we study the Torah and other books of the Bible, you can freely interchange the words redemption and salvation to a great degree. The only real difference is that the term salvation has taken on a meaning of including the belief that it is Yeshua the Messiah who has redeemed us from our sins. But from a generic and purely literary standpoint, redemption and salvation mean basically the same thing. And notice, it wasn't the law that redeemed Israel. God redeemed Israel. And then sometime afterward, he gave them the law. Now let's follow this God pattern. That's established in the Torah. Recall that upon Israel being rescued, redeemed, the very first thing God did was to remove them from all they had been familiar with. Egypt. Okay. Slavery to a cruel and evil taskmaster was over, but that doesn't mean difficulty and challenge had ended. Okay. Already in the earliest stages of their exodus, those fears and securities of the unknown had caused some of the Hebrews to want to turn back, to discard their newly found freedoms and reconnect themselves even to that awful slavery they knew but were at some level comfortable with rather than to fully submit themselves to God to be remolded. And remade into his image. Which in itself is a long and sometimes fearful process under the best of circumstances, isn't it? Once the Lord put some distance in between the Israelites and their past, the next thing he did was to teach them about his holiness. And this was accomplished by means of the very Torah we're now studying. Upon the summit of Mount Sinai, God gave Moses many... Ordinances and rules, laws, commands for Moses to give to the people of Israel. How else would the people know what God was about? How would they learn about who God is and what he accepts of his worshipers if he didn't tell them, if he didn't tell us? Though modern Christians tend to think about those 613 laws and the Torah as being about us, things we're to do, things we're not to do. In reality, they inform us all about Him. They tell us how immeasurably holy and just is the God of the Bible. They tell us what holiness amounts to, what holiness looks like. They tell us who God is, that He fully expects those He has bought and paid for to strive throughout the duration of our lives towards his definition of holiness and justice, not ours. My dear friends, this exact pattern established 3,300 years ago is still what the believer's walk is supposed to look like today. Israel wasn't redeemed by a knowledge of God. They were redeemed by a work of God. We also can't be intellectually persuaded to turn to Messiah. It's a work of the Holy Spirit of God upon us. Yet once that work of the Holy Spirit of God's occurred, and once the Ruah Hakodesh has indwelled us, what comes next? At least what's intended for us is our quest for knowledge. Too much the church has implied that upon our salvation experience, whatever knowledge of God that we may ever have, is to happen by some mystical means. That we can just kind of sit in our armchairs, watch a little TV, and somehow in our subconscious, the Holy Spirit will implant in us an understanding of God's holiness and what all that entails. That as Christians, nothing outside of our salvation experience matters much. That striving to learn God's ways and to experience them by our deeds and our works is even something maybe to be avoided. Yet that in no way is the example we're given in Scripture, Old or New Testament. The fact remains that we can no more intellectualize our way to a relationship with Christ than we can sleep our way to a knowledge of holiness. The Israelites didn't learn about God's righteousness and his laws and then as a result, strategize and organize and then rise up against Pharaoh and free themselves. The Lord did it all. Yet after their redemption, it was expected that they would learn about holiness and the ways of light. First by knowledge, then by acting out what they'd learned. In every facet of their lives. Now I have a couple more matters to address with you and then we're going to read Numbers chapter 1 together. First, the book we just completed, Leviticus, was all about the announcing and teaching of God's holiness. Numbers, on the other hand, book of Numbers, is all about putting that knowledge to work. Leviticus was all about the imparting of God's laws and commands to his people. Numbers tells us the historical story of his people's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness after they had gained that knowledge, after they had received the law. Now the second thing I'd like to tell you is this. You've heard me pronounce God's name slightly different than many others might. Now, I've done a fair amount of study on his name because of all the controversy that surrounds it. And all the times you've asked me about it have caused me to look into it more and more. And you know, the difficulty of knowing with absolute certainty how to pronounce the Lord's formal name that's spelled in Hebrew, yud Hey bav Hey, really begins with the fact that the Jews stopped pronouncing it well over 2,000 years ago and so... In some sense, the sound of his name has been been lost. Further, when we attempt to pronounce it in English, we're trying to mimic the sounds of Hebrew letters with English alphabet sounds. And this process of converting Hebrew words to English words is called transliteration. It doesn't go very smoothly. The problem with all transliterations from from their original language is that there are letters and vowel sounds and grammar rules that don't necessarily have direct equivalence from one language to another. There are words and phrases and idioms, sayings, even entire concepts that don't have direct equivalence between Hebrew and other languages. Grammatically speaking, there are letters in Hebrew that do not have direct Greek, Latin, or English equivalents. Hebrew doesn't even have past or future tenses, as we're used to dealing with. Because in English and Greek, tenses are used to to, to place the action that they're referring to in relationship to time such as was, past, is, present, will be, the future. Instead, Hebrew employs what is called perfect and imperfect tenses. (laughs) These indicate whether an action is complete or incomplete. Okay, And often when translating those Hebrew tenses to Greek or English, we automatically equate Complete with past and incomplete with future. And that is not correct. Okay, So it is in the context of what reads in Hebrew, plus that tense that tells us whether an action was approximately in the past, the present, or the future. And of course all that's just the tip of the iceberg in transliteration and translation issues. So how can we reasonably and honestly, and most importantly, reverently deal with the matter of God's name and even our Savior's name how do we do that well from the very best Hebrew and Gentile sources available to me I can tell you that regardless of how we might precisely verbalize, vocalize rather uh, the Lord's name it can't be anything but a three syllable word it's simply a matter of basic Hebrew grammar Okay. When a Hebrew word begins with a yud and then follows with three more standard consonants, generally, not to a fault, but generally, each consonant requires a vowel sound. That's just a Hebrew grammar rule. So we must have three vowel sounds in yud he, vav-heh, in the name of God. The pronunciation of Yahweh or Yahveh, therefore, is a little less likely. Because it's two syllables and employs only two vowel sounds. More correctly, it's probably something on the order of Yehovah. Yehovah. Or Yehovah. Okay, now, some think Yahweh Yahweh is simply a contraction of the word Yehovah. A contraction is when we take a word or a phrase and we shorten it. Like instead of saying, do not, we say don't. Okay? Which is one syllable. Do not, don't. See? We just took out a section. Some contractions have occurred not because of how the word is spelled, but because how the word is pronounced. When one says Yahweh, rapidly, it can to the Greek or English-speaking person sound like a two-syllable word. Saying Yahweh may also represent a kind of rebellion against using the English three-syllable word Jehovah. But in the end, saying Yahweh or Yahweh is likely nothing more than a misconception by well-meaning scholars who simply didn't understand Hebrew grammar rules or didn't hear that very subtle O in the middle of the word. The word Jehovah is, that is standard in Western Christianity is born out of a German way of spelling Yehofe. And then centuries ago was Englishized into our common Jehovah. Okay, so Jehovah is a pretty reasonable English language-based pronunciation of God's name, as long as we understand that saying Jehovah is the equivalent of calling a Russian person named Mikhail, Mike. It is. Which we wouldn't normally do, would we? Now, as concerns Messiah's name. Yeshua suffers from the same problem as the God The Father's name does. Scholars have long known that Jesus' Hebrew name is identical to the name of Moses' protege who conquered Canaan. Joshua. And in Hebrew, Joshua is Yahshua. Yahshua. There we see that middle O. Added that effectively adds one more syllable to his name that has since been contracted to Yeshua. As for the name Jesus, there have been many false stories put out about how this name came about. The most common is that Jesus is taken from the spelling of the Greek god Zeus. This is not true. To begin with, Zeus is spelled with a Zeta, a Greek Zeta, while there is no Zeta in Jesus' name. We have the form Jesus in English due to a standard transliteration process that began with the original Hebrew Yahshua and then became contracted to Yeshua, which became transliterated to Greek. Then the Greek into Latin, then the Latin into English. Using the name Jesus is not pagan, it's not wrong, but it is a long way from anything he ever would have heard himself referred to when he walked, his earth, walked this earth. His mother did not yell, Hey Jesus, it's time for dinner. Okay. That said, it has to be understood by those who are Gentile Christians that for us to use the word Jesus when speaking to Jewish believers indicates to them a complete insensitivity to the fact that we know and can easily pronounce the Messiah's true historical given name, Yeshua, Yahushua, But we choose to distance him from his own Jewishness and make him more Gentile-like by insisting on using a thoroughly Gentile name for him, Jesus. I've even had misinformed people tell me that to say Yeshua is blasphemy because his name is Jesus. Oh yeah. Now, personally, I much prefer Yeshua because that was his given name in his own culture. And when I travel to a foreign nation and speak to people there, naturally I use their name as it is in their language, though I probably butcher it. But equally when a foreigner comes here, I also use their name as it is in their language here as well, of course. If a person moves to America and decides he wants to alter his name to reflect western language traditions, that's fine. Now, it is yet another matter as to whether we should pronounce God's name at all. I personally see no scriptural prohibition against it except to use it irreverently. But I do understand why some see it differently. So when I'm in Israel, for instance, or in a predominantly, in front of a predominantly Jewish group, out of respect to them, I use their connotations for God by saying perhaps Hashem or the Lord. But here in Torah class where we have a mixture of Jews and Gentiles and we have people, some more familiar with Hebrew and the Old Testament and others who are just beginning, it's necessary for me to use and equate a number of forms of God's and Messiah's name. After all, as your teacher, if I'm using words that make no sense to some of you, I'm not communicating, I'm just flapping my gums up here. So, at the times when I do pronounce yud heh vav He, the letters that form God's name, I will be saying Yehovah. Many times I will not pronounce his name, but use the various forms that modern Jews use, like Hashem, or Lord, or Adonai, and a couple of others. But out of deference to our Jewish members, and as a way of learning, for we... Gentiles, I'm going to switch back and forth between saying Jesus and Yeshua. My personal preference, I say again, is Yeshua. Because it's easily pronounced. This is not hard for Americans to pronounce. And it is his proven historical name. Well, with all this preliminary is out of the way now, let's get into Numbers chapter 1. Open your Bibles. Numbers chapter 1. We're going to read the entire first chapter. Numbers chapter 1. Adonai spoke to Moshe on the, in the Sinai desert in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month of the second year after they had la- left the land of Egypt, and he said, Take a census of the entire assembly of the people of Israel by clans and families. Record the names of all the men 20 years old and over who are subject to military service in Israel. You and Aharon are to enumerate them company by company. Now take with you from each tribe someone who's head of a clan. These are the men to take with you. From Rehoven, Elitzur, the son of Shedur. From Shimon. Shlomiel, the son of Tsur Shaddai from Yehuda, Nachshon the son of Aminadav from Yisachar Detaniel, the, the son of Tsuar, from Zebulun Eliab, the son of Halon from the children of Yosef, from Ephraim Elishama, the son of Amahud, from Manesha, Gamliel, the son of Zatsur, from Binyamin. Avidan, the son of Gidonai. From Dan, Akiestr, the son of Aminashaddai. From Asher, Pagiel, the son of Ochran. From Gad, Elyasaf, the son of Dewel. From Naphtali, Achira, the son of Enan. These were the ones called from the assembly. The chief chiefs of their father's clans and heads of thousands in Israel. So Moses and Aaron took these men who had been designated by name and on the first day of the second month they gathered the whole assembly to state their genealogies by families and clans and they recorded the names of all those 20 years old and over as well as their total numbers. Now Moses counted them in the Sinai desert just as Adonai had ordered him. The men twenty years old and over who were subject to military service were recorded by name, family, and clan, starting with the descendants of Reuben, Israel's firstborn. And here are the totals: the descendants of Reuben, forty-six thousand five hundred; the descendants of Simeon, fifty-nine thousand three hundred; the descendants of Gad, forty-five six fifty; the descendants of Judah, seventy-four thousand six hundred; the descendants of Issachar. 54,400, the descendants of Zebulun, 57,400, the descendants of Ephraim, 40,500, the descendants of Manasseh, 32,200, the descendants of Benjamin, 35,400, the descendants of Dan, 62,700, the descendants of Asher, 41,500, the descendants of Naphtali, 53,400. Now Moses, Aaron, and the 12 leaders of Israel, each from a clan, counted the people of Israel by their clans, those 20 years old and over, eligible for military service in Israel, and the grand total came to 603,550. But the Levites, no matter what their clan, were not counted in this census. Because Adonai had told Moses, do not include the tribe of Levi, when you take the census of the people of Israel instead give the Leviim charge over the tabernacle of the testimony, its equipment everything else connected with it they are to carry the tabernacle and all of its equipment serve in it, set up their camp around it, and when the tabernacle is to be moved onward it is the Leviim who are to take it down, set it up in the new location, anyone else who involves himself with this is to be put to death the rest of Israel are to set up camp, company by company, each man with his own banner. <coughs> but the Levain, the Levites are to camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that no anger will come upon the assembly of the people of Israel. The Levites are to be in charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. And this is what the people of Israel did. They did everything that I had ordered Moses. Well, the timing of this first chapter is that it's the month after the wilderness tabernacle was completed and the priesthood was ordained into existence. The Israelites have been gone from Egypt for 13 months, which means they had been camping at the foot of Mount Sinai for about a year and they had yet to move on. Now, on this day, Yehoveh, orders a census of all the people of Israel, and that's the focus of this chapter. In fact, it's this census of Israelites that led to the English title for the book, Numbers. But this is a terrible choice for a title for this book. And it leads the uninitiated into thinking that this book is all about lists and minute details. Nothing could be further from reality. The Hebrew name for this book is Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. And that's exactly what this book is about. The many stories of Israel's wilderness journey. Now, although this begins with census results, there's a lot of information here that can be useful for us to know besides the population of every tribe. For instance, in the ancient world, The first day of each month was usually a holiday. Rosh Chodesh, the new moon. And it was the regular day that tribal elders would meet. And after that meeting, instructions or decisions regarding their community could be communicated throughout population. Now the logical question is, why does God want a census of the Israelites to be taken? Doesn't he know how many there are? I mean, the point of the census is to organize an army. This is all about preparation for war. Just as the meeting of the leadership of the first day of the month on the new moon was customary among all known societies for that era, era, so was the taking of a census just prior to going into war. Typically, the census was repeated then immediately after the battle so as to tally the loss of life and determine what remained of the army's strength. Therefore, we get the instruction in verse 3 that all Israelites are to be counted and that every male from the age of 20 and upward is to be recorded according to what tribe he belongs to. In other words... There's not merely to be a sum total. The statistics are to be broken down, tribe by tribe, even clan by clan, actually. Now, just as every nation today has a minimum age for military service, generally speaking, it was the same thing back then. And that age was 20 years. And by the way, The Roman age of military conscription some centuries into the future would be 17. During the Vietnam era, in modern times, it was 18 in America. In some European nations, not even 150 years ago, the age for military service was as young as 12 or 13, depending on how dire the situation was. Now, interestingly... There is no upper age limit set for this census. When we look at other societies from that era, we find that when there was a particularly arduous or important war coming, the usual deferment for the elderly was set aside. And the aged were expected to contribute to the war effort in whatever way they could, even if it wasn't fighting. But they were considered part of the military apparatus nonetheless. Now, further, this census was accomplished by means of separating people according to their family units within the tribes. Now, the book of Numbers, Bamidbar in Hebrews, and Hebrew rather, is going to show us the typical Hebrew societal structure, and thus we're going to get several Hebrew words used to describe the various family and social units. Now one of the most used Hebrew terms that we'll usually find translated as family in the English Bible is mishpacha. Okay, And probably a better alternative to that word is clan, not family. The best way to think of a clan is as a kind of intermediate size of social unit. Somewhere in between a single family and a whole tribe. Okay. Now in verse 4, Moses is instructed that the tribal chieftains, also at times translated as princes, who are the headmen of each of the twelve tribes, there to assist him. The idea is. That Moses and Aaron are to delegate this job of census taking to the leader of each tribe, and then Numbers proceeds to give us the name of the current Nasi, that is the for each tribe. Nasi is the Hebrew word, usually that indicates the tribal chieftain, the headman, the prince of that tribe, the top dog. So so that we can kind of better understand Israelite societal structure and get a good grip on the typical biblical way a person is identified let's look at the first name and the group identified in verse 5 it begins by identifying the first level of division of Israel it identifies one of the 12 tribes which together form whole Israel and that tribe is called Reuben now, the current chieftain of that tribe, the head man, is someone named um, El-Azur. And El-Azur comes from the family, or really the clan, of Shadur. Now, in general, tribes were divided up into clans and clan units were very powerful. The easiest way to understand this process is to begin with the person who first formed the tribe, and then see how that proceeds. Reuben, who was the first son born to Jacob, was the founder of the tribe of Reuben. Reuben had several children. Each of his male children would have started their own family. Within two or three more generations, there would have been enough people that each of these sons of Reuben would now have been considered the head of a clan of people. So now there would have been several heads of clans that together formed the tribe of Reuben. Yet the fact remains that when Reuben, the head of the tribe, died, one of his sons, one of those clan leaders, would have to assume his position. Usually, but not always, it was the head of the tribe's designated firstborn who would take over. And when he died, his firstborn would assume control over the whole tribe and so on and so on. But there were glitches and exceptions in this procedure. After several generations, perhaps a firstborn and his family were wiped out with a disease or maybe they died in battle. Or another clan grew greater and more powerful than other ones in that tribe. So it fell to the to one of the other clan leaders to assume the role of the head of the entire tribe. Now, how this w- was determined v- varied quite a bit, but usually it was according to which clan was the most powerful. Right? And as you can imagine, there was a lot of intrigue and politicking and a lot of murder when the usual and customary line of succession got interrupted. So the structure for identifying just who the head of each tribe is here in Numbers, is first to state the tribe, then to state the name of the current tribal leader, then to state from which of the several clans that formed that tribe this particular tribal ruler came from. Therefore, we have to be cautious in this kind of listing, not to assume, for instance, that El was literally the son of a man named Shadur. Very probably, Shadur was the name of a large clan. And El-Azur was simply from the clan of Shadur. So the listing of the tribal chieftain doubles as the list of census supervisors. And in verse 17, we're told that Moses and Aaron led the chieftains into doing what God had instructed. Now, before we go any further, notice that one significant tribe is missing from the list of tribes that are to take part in the census. And that tribe is Levi. And we're going to find out why that is very quickly. Verse 20 begins to announce the results of the census, which goes on for 22 more verses. And the numbers are pretty substantial. Now remember that these numbers are not, hear me, they're not the total population of Israel. They're just the male population, 20 years of age and older, in general those who could fight in battle. The largest tribe at this moment in history was apparently that of Judah, and it amounted to 74,600 warriors. The next largest was Joseph. And even though we don't technically have a tribe of Joseph at this point in Israelite history, instead Joseph is represented by his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Therefore, we arrive at the total population of Joseph by adding Ephraim and Manasseh together, which brings us to a total of 72,700. Now, as we study Torah and all the other books of the Bible that deal with latter-day prophecies, will often be reminded that Ephraim and Manasseh are essentially temporary but long-term placeholders for Joseph. That for special divine purposes, the authority and rights given to Joseph have been transferred to Ephraim and Manasseh for a time. Because these issues of the twelve tribes of Israel are so central in understanding the past and the present and the future of not just Israel but of all mankind we need to constantly be making mental note that Ephraim and Manasseh must often be looked at as a conglomerate representing their father Joseph Important thing to remember when studying the Bible. Now the total tally of the eligible men for military service came to 603,550. And this exactly matches the number recorded back in Exodus 38 when a census was taken for the purposes of collecting a half-shekel tax on all military-aged men. And there certainly shouldn't have been much difference between the two counts, because the first census had been taken only a few months earlier than this new one. And apparently it had been, been conducted in a different manner than the one we're looking at here in Numbers. The earlier one had to do with atonement for the nation of Israel as a whole, not forming an army for holy war. Therefore, in the Exodus census, there was no breakdown by tribe. Nor was there a recording of each male according to which clan he belonged to. Instead, all males, 20 years of age and older were kind of lumped together. It didn't matter which tribe or clan they belonged to. In this Bamidbar census, though, a different purpose was the point of it. It was to establish battle order. Okay. Therefore, clan and tribe mattered. Because the tribe one came from indicated the most basic battle unit one would belong to and fight beside. For those of you who have studied the American Civil War, you'll know that most of the conscriptions of troops were made based on the state or even the county that person came from. Each state that joined in the Civil War effort was expected to contribute a certain number of troops to the war effort. So these Civil War battle units were usually named according to either the state or the county they were from, as opposed, as they were composed primarily of men hailing from that particular state or county. So if this were happening today, we might have the Merritt Island Regiment Composed of men from Merritt Island or the Orlando Regiment formed for men living in the Orlando area. Now, the reasons for all this are obvious. Men who know each other or are family will be a lot more loyal to one another and stick together than if they weren't. And they'll feel like they're fighting for a land to which they're attached and they have a stake in it rather than some maybe ideological or philosophical thing, like a hoped-for nation or a confederation that may or may not result from their sacrifice of life and limb. Now the same idea is taking place here in Numbers, whereby the clan and the tribe one belongs to automatically determines which battle unit you're going to belong to. It would be pretty much unthinkable that a member of the tribe of Judah, for example, would be under the control of a commander from the tribe of Dan. So each tribe was going to be, in a sense, its own army. As Israel ready for its conquest of the conquest of the land of Canaan, the situation was going to be like Desert Storm or World War II, where we had different nations participating, each with their own national armies loyal to their own nation, but fighting together as allies in a coordinated way. That's different than, say, with Vietnam, where we had different units of the same American army fighting under one flag and one commander for one nation. It was going to take a very long time before this idea of Israel being a single, unified nation would actually come about in their minds. And that was going to be under King David. Until then, each of the 12 Israelite tribes, they looked a lot more like separate nations. They behaved more as simply allies of one another than as a single unified nation. Now, without doubt, this enormous tally of 603,500 fighting men presents real problems for historians and Bible scholars. Because depending on one's guesstimate on what the total population of Israel must have been when you include women and children, the numbers would have been somewhere upwards of 2 million, likely approaching 3 million people. And there has been all manner of speculation and downright disbelief that this is even possible. Now many attempts at justifying a supposed error. And the reporting of these numbers have been proposed, ranging from saying that the Hebrew word eleb, that has been translated as thousand, should have been translated as hundred or even family, all the way to saying that these numbers were redacted in a much later period to reflect the population of Israel at the time of the redaction and not at the time of Moses. Others say it must simply be legend, because there is just no way that the Sinai Desert or the Arabian Peninsula could have supported two to three million people for 40 years because it's all just such a desert wasteland. Still today, just like it was in Moses' era. Yet most scholarly arguments against the large population population suggested by numbers stems from looking at this matter from a purely secular and pragmatic point of view using the same methods that we look at all Bible events in which a miracle of God is the only possible answer. Okay, That is, it is the assumption that there's no such thing as a miracle of God. And therefore all proofs have to be rational or lie within natural consequences, even if they're rare. And they have to be verifiable, they have to be testable. Okay, From that viewpoint, these scholars are correct. There is utterly no earthly way whatsoever that 20,000 let alone two million or more, Israelites could have camped and survived for 40 years in the wilderness of Sinai. Like all matters concerning the Bible, faith is at the core. If we cannot believe in miracles of God, then we cannot possibly trust Him. When edicts and actions of God defy human logic and sensibilities, we have a choice. Believe Him or believe our own intellect even though we can get scoffed at and laughed at, the idea that a few million Israelites lived in the Sinai for 40 years is actually easier to believe for me, anyway, than the concept that God himself came down from his heavenly throne, put on a skin suit, and made himself vulnerable to humans. Or that he came to earth as Yeshua the Messiah and gave up his own life, to pay the price for our iniquities. So important are we to him that he do such a thing. If you are one who has made the decision to trust Yeshua, then this is what you believe, by the way. And if you can believe that, then believing all the rest is a piece of cake. And I'm here to tell you, you can trust the Word of God. Okay, But be cautious, because sometimes... The various translations that we have available to us are littered with ancient and modern agendas of their translators. Don't ever kid yourself. But once we've learned the Torah, those agendas are going to be a lot easier to spot and reckon with. Well, we began today's study on Numbers, chapter 1 by discussing the census of the Israelites that Jehovah ordered Moses to take. The thing we noticed was the tribe of Levi was left out of the count and up to now we haven't been told why. But we also find that not including the tribe of Levi, the Israelite men age 20 and up added up to an astonishing 603,550, an enormous number of Accurate means the population of Israel as it left Egypt was somewhere between 2 and 3 million people. Well, now that's all well and good. We also know that a large portion of the folks who left Egypt with Israel were not Hebrews. They were Egyptians. And various other groups of Semites and who knows what other combination of nationalities that had been in Egypt for one reason or another at the time of these plagues that God had poured out on Egypt. And these various peoples had been so impressed with the power of the God of Israel that they wanted to join up with Israel. They wanted to enjoy the benefits of worshipping such a God. And they wanted to participate in the exodus from Egypt to a promised land. So the question is, Where and how do these non-Hebrews fit into the mix? Were they counted in the census as being assigned to one tribe or another? The short answer is that we're not really for sure. We don't know. For sure it was a mixed bag, though. Okay, Some of these foreigners had already married Israelite men and women, so they were pretty easily associated to one or another of the twelve tribes, and thus they almost certainly would have figured it into the final census. But the foreigners who weren't genealogically connected with Israel, nor had they married into Israel, would have had to make a choice. They would have had to declare allegiance to one or another of the twelve tribes, or tag along as non-members of Israel. As non-members of Israel, they would not have been counted in the census. And they would not have been allowed to live within the camp of Israel. Rather, they would have had to set up their tents beyond Israelite camp limits. We have no way of knowing how many would have fallen into that category. But understand, these foreigners were welcome to tag along, and they were not considered enemies. Now, without doubt, these same foreigners helped to contribute to the delinquency of Israel. As it pertained to idol worship, not that Israel needed a lot of help in that area. Well, let's. I want to finish tonight by just rereading a short, set, short section of this uh, chapter, and then we'll conclude. I want to reread 47 to the end. But the Levites, no matter what their clan, were not counted in this census because Adonai had told Moses, "Do not include the tribe of Levi when you take the census of the people of Israel. Instead, give the Levites charge." Over the tabernacle of the testimony, its equipment, everything else connected with it. They're to carry the tabernacle and all its equipment, serve in it, set up their camp around it. When the tabernacle is to be moved onward, it's the Levites who are to take it down and set it up in the new location. Anyone else who involves himself is to be put to death. The rest of Israel are to set up camp company by company, each man with his own banner. But the Levites are to camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that no anger will come upon the assembly of the people of Israel. The Levites are to be in charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. This is what the people of Israel did. They did everything that Adonai had ordered Moses. Here it states that the Levites were not to be counted for the purpose of a military conscription. And We're going to find out later that indeed the Levites were counted But it had nothing to do with being part of a war effort. And that's the gist of what's being said here. Further, from this time forward, which is essentially indefinitely, the Levites are not to be counted as a regular part of Israel. I cannot tell you how critical that is in your understanding of the Bible, and particularly in times. Instead, they are being put in charge of the newly constructed Wilderness Tabernacle. That glorious tent shrine that would be central to the worship and lives of Israel for the next several centuries. Further, it's the Levites who are to disassemble it when it's time to move on and carry it during the journey and then reassemble it when they arrive at their next destination. The Levites are in charge of everything that pertains to the tabernacle, including its furnishings and such things as the bronze altar for burnt offerings. But they also have another important duty. They are to guard that sanctuary from anybody who would encroach upon it. So starting in verse 52 and then moving on to chapter 2. We find a very specific order that each of the twelve tribes is to camp around that tabernacle. Further, the Levites are to camp between those twelve tribes and the sanctuary, acting as a defensive barrier in order to fulfill their new role as guardians of God's earthly dwelling place. Now, just why are the Levites set apart to guard the sanctuary? Verse 53 says, this was so wrath may not strike the Israelite community. Now this all sounds rather straightforward, but we need to fully grasp what a momentous thing has happened here, both historically and spiritually, and we're going to explore that next week.